I don't know if there is a holiday weekend that is, creates more polarizing emotions than Labor Day weekend. Uh, and the reason why is that I think for parents, this is an exciting weekend because kids are heading back to school, but for kids, it's a sad weekend, and, and maybe for some teachers, it's a sad weekend too, but uh, it's a very different set of emotions as we approach the school week. We're going to actually pray for our students uh, at the end of the service this morning, but also it's polarizing because this is sort of the goodbye to summer weekend, and I know some of you were like, summer never showed up this year, but this sort of is the official goodbye to summer, hello to fall, and there's very polarizing emotions about that. Some of you, how many of you are summer people? You're very sad to see summer go, yeah. And how many of you are fall people? You're excited to see fall. So I'm with you. I'm excited to see fall. I love fall for a lot of different reasons. I love the flavors of fall. I love the sense of fall. I love the smell of pumpkin, whether it's in a latte or if it's in a pie. I like spices and cinnamon and the smell of a turkey leg. Uh, I enjoy all of those things. I also like what happens in the sports world in the fall because American football is back and European football is back and uh, the baseball season is headed towards the playoffs. And so uh, I love the fall. Uh, I also love uh, the weather of the fall. And I love the clothes of the fall because it starts to cool down, right? And so I sort of feel like in summer, summer clothes I feel is like for the in-shape people. Like, you know, those little thin little t-shirts and shorts. Like that works if, you're, if you are in shape. But for the rest of us, fall is our turn. Because, you know, you start to throw on a hoodie, you can't tell what's happening. Like you don't know, you can't tell really how in shape exactly that person is. So, so I, I love the fall for those reasons. But if I'm honest, the reason I love the fall the most is because there's really significant dates in the fall for, for me. I was married in October. My wife was born in November. And very selfishly, I was born this month. I was born in September. And so I love the fall. And I'm approaching a, a pretty big birthday, not, not one of the really big ones, but uh, one that's getting me a year away from a really big one. And uh, there, are some, there are some indicators that I'm getting older that actually have nothing to do with the calendar. And one of the surest indicators is that uh, at this point in my life, I am doing the exact same things I used to do when I was younger, but I, they do not have the exact same results. Uh, they don't have the exact same consequences. Uh, last month, we were with our girls in Southern California, and we took them to Disneyland. And Lilia is nine now, so it's a fun age because she now can go on all the big rides. This is really our first time at an amusement park where Lilia wanted to go on adult-type rides. And so she wanted to go on this ride called Space Mountain. And Space Mountain is an indoors, in the dark roller coaster. Now, when I was a kid, when I was younger, I loved stuff like that. I mean, I would get in line and go on that over and over and over, and I felt amazing. I felt better after I got off the ride. Imagine that. Uh, so I agreed to go on this ride with Lilia. I get on the ride. It was fun, and I thought I was okay. But when I got off that ride, I did not feel better. <laughs> it was about 30 minutes before I even felt like I was myself again. And so, you know, as you're getting older, things you used to do have the different results and consequences. Another example is, um, you know, just things like uh, physical activity. When I was in high school, we used to love to play tackle football on the weekends. And in the, even in the snow, we would go out and we'd play tackle football and we would just hit each other and hurt each other. And I would go home, I'd go to sleep and I would wake up the next morning and I would feel fine because I was young and I was able to endure that. Now I go to bed feeling fine 
and I, somehow I wake up sore. Like, I, what, how, who is beating me in the middle of the night? Like, how am I more sore uh, when I get up in the morning? And then another big change in my life is the food that I eat. You know, when you're young, you can eat whatever you want. It really doesn't matter. Any time of the night, you can eat, and you're going to feel fine in the morning. I'm learning the hard way that there are certain times of night I should not be eating pizza and wings because I will, I will not feel well the next day. So, you know, at this stage in my life, I, I'm learning that some choices have pretty consistent consequences and pretty consistent results. We've been in a series, a four-week series from Genesis 1 and 2 called Before the Fall. And this morning, we are both at the end of the series, and also we're at the end of this period of time, this very brief period of time in the history of humankind, the time that we call Before the Fall. And what happens next, what we're going to talk about this morning, is a choice that changes everything. And what we're going to learn is that this choice has a guaranteed outcome, result, consequence in all of our lives. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3. And in fact, I want to read uh, the verse before Genesis 3, Genesis 2.25. Genesis 2.25, it says this, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We're talking about Adam and Eve. Okay, that's very important. They were both naked and not ashamed. Now let's go to Genesis 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, just pause for a second. God never said anything about touching the tree. He said not to eat from the tree. So you already see here a slight sort of twisting of what God said, almost making him seem even more uh, unreasonable. Verse 6, or sorry, verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I'm naked and I, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So when this story begins, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. When the story ends, Adam and Eve are naked and they're hiding. And the big idea for this morning, the, the main thought for this morning's talk is simply this, that sin always creates shame and separation. Sin always leads to, always results in, always creates two things, shame and separation. 
So let's talk about shame first. And the idea of nakedness in this text, I mean, it's a, it's a word that is used over and over, and it's teaching us something here. You know, Adam and Eve, after they sin, out of all the things that the Bible could have said that they first noticed, it says that they first noticed that they were naked. They were suddenly aware of their own nakedness. Now, how is it, I, I, we have to wonder, how is it possible that they weren't aware previously? I mean, how is that possible? You know, I know in the morning we get up and there's certain things that we need to do. And sometimes you leave the house with forgetting to do something, right? Forget to brush your teeth, forget to feed the pet, forget to pack your lunch, forget to eat breakfast. Anybody do any of those things before? But I'm pretty sure that none of us have ever forgotten to put our clothes on, right? I mean, we're so aware of that need That is not something that we ever miss. It's not something that we ever overlook. But somehow, Adam and Eve, previous to the fall, before the fall, were not even aware of their own nakedness. So how is that possible? How could that even be true? Just this past weekend, I was running a retreat for some students, and we took them over to the movie tavern over in Camillus, and they saw this animated film. But the movie tavern is the, it's a theater with the recliners, and they bring you your meal, which is a great idea in theory, except that once you get your meal, it's pitch black in there. It's dark. So, like, I had a hamburger that I was trying to construct in the dark. So I got my phone out. I'm trying to, like, because, you know, you got to get that thing made properly. And so here I am trying to put my burger together. But the worst part for me is that uh, I can't pay attention to like what's happening as I'm eating. For some reason, I've been on this remarkable streak recently of spilling food on myself when I eat. I mean, it's crazy. I don't know what's going on. But I, I, I watched the whole movie. I ate the, whole, I ate the burger. I ate the fries. I, I drank my soda. I enjoyed the whole thing. I thought it was fine until I walked out of the theater and daylight hit my shirt. And I was like, who did this to me? Like... <laughs> Who attacked me during the movie? And I all of a sudden looked down. I was like, oh, no. And I didn't have anything to change into. And thankfully, we were headed to the fair where that sort of attire fits right in. But uh, I was still like, oh, this, I got to. So I started cleaning myself off. And the reason why I didn't notice what was happening to me, the reason why I wasn't aware of myself is because I was so focused on something else. And that's really the only explanation here is that Adam and Eve lived in a state that you and I can't even begin to imagine, one in which their existence had nothing to do with themselves. That's like, we don't understand that. Our whole world revolves around ourselves. They lived in an existence that wasn't centered around and focused on themselves. Their attention and their affection was focused completely and perfectly on someone else, on God. And so... They see this, they become aware of their nakedness. Now, what does nakedness mean in this story? I think it means a few things. First off, nakedness means very obviously that you're not covered. There's no covering. And there's, and there's this lack of security when we don't feel like we're covered. I mean, we even, we even say this like, uh, you know, this idea of um, you feel like, you know, you ever leave the house without your phone? There's this phrase, when you leave your house without your phone or without something that you always have, you say, I feel what? I feel naked without my phone. That's what we're saying. There's something that I'm used to that brings me security, that brings me covering, that even brings me a sense of self that I've lost. And so this nakedness, all of a sudden they realize there's no covering. The covering that was over us before, I'm not just speaking, by the way, of a physical covering, because remember, they were naked already. I'm speaking of a different sort of covering. It's gone, and they're aware of it. This also speaks of vulnerability, which is all of a sudden they become aware that I can be injured, I can be hurt, you can hurt me, but also it's the awareness that you're vulnerable too. So now I can be hurt, but now I also know how to hurt you. And this all enters into our world. And then the third thing that this nakedness means is shame. Now shame isn't about what you do, it's, it's a sense of who you are. 
It's not that you're not good at what you do. It's that there's actually something wrong with who you are. You don't measure up. You're not good enough. And so sin always leads to shame. Now, this is a familiar story. Look at what they tried to do to cover their nakedness. They go to the leaves. And two weeks ago when we talked about work, we talked a little bit about this. But this is a little bit ridiculous, right? I mean, going to leaves and taking leaves to try to make clothes to cover yourself. But the truth is, is that you and I, we do the same. Now, we don't literally go get leaves to cover our physical nakedness, but we look to things in creation to cover, to cover our spiritual nakedness, to, to cover our sense of neediness, our, our lack of worth and value. And so we try to cover ourselves. And what we do is we turn the good of creation into a God. We turn the good into a God. And so we, do, we try to cover ourselves with things like our achievements, with our accomplishments, our social status, our political alliance, our, our moral living, our religious fervor, our, our possessions, our family, pleasure that can numb us and, and help us to escape from reality, the, the relationships in our lives. And we turn to these things and we, we, we ask these things to cover our sense of inadequacy and shame and nakedness. And Adam and Eve are doing it at the beginning and many, many years later, we're still doing it. But what are yours, you know? I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud, but here's a few things to ask yourself to identify. What are the things that you try to cover yourself with? You try to cover your shame with. You try to make yourself feel better about yourself. Here's some clues. If someone ever critiques you, attacks you, or judges you, what are you quick to point out to them? How do you defend yourself? How do you say, oh, that, yeah, but at least I fill in the blank. Whatever that is, that might be something you're using to try and cover yourself. How about this? How, uh, when you find yourself judging other people, what is that based on? I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe they think that. I can't believe they believe that. Whatever that thing is, that very issue might be the issue that you've built your life on. And, and because you feel like you're right on that issue or because you feel like you're on the inside of that conversation, you're using that access and that status and that knowledge and that intellect and to, to cover yourself. Or here's one more. What do you hope other people will discover about you when you first meet them? You know that initial conversation where you're just kind of introducing yourself and the whole time in the back of your mind you're thinking, how do I spin this conversation so that they learn this about me? Whatever that this is, that might be something you're trying to cover yourself with. Now, we have to ask ourselves, does this work? Can we actually cover ourselves with our achievements, with our accomplishments, with our success, with our families, whatever it is? There's a great example from history uh, involving Alexander the Great. I read about this in a book called Look and Live. Alexander the Great had this remarkable ambition and ability to conquer and rule the known world. Wildly successful. And I, this, I'm going to read to you this, this, this brief paragraph. It says that he, as he began to conquer nations and peoples, he started with Thessaly. Then he overpowered the Thracians. He crushed the Illyrians. And then he moved on to the Thebes. Check. Next was Persia, Persia and Tyre. Check. Then he hit a slow year, and he was only able to conquer Gaza, Egypt, and Babylon. After conquering most of the known world, he made his final conquest to Punjab. But by this time, his men were so exhausted, they all went home. So he's conquered the entire known world. There's really nothing left for him to do. And so Alexander the Great decided he would spend some time and take inventory of all his success. So he calls all his advisors together, and he enters in his tent, and he sits down, and they begin to talk about all the things that they've done and all the amazing things that he accomplished. And you know what he did in that moment? He wept. 
he began to weep and could not stop weeping, and not from joy, but from despair. Because he'd conquered the whole world. There was nothing left to conquer, and he still was himself. And he still wasn't satisfied. And that's the worst feeling in the world. We think the worst feeling in the world is not getting what we want most. But the worst feeling in the world is getting it and then realizing it wasn't enough to begin with. So I know that's a really old example. Let me give you a more current example, especially as we are preparing for the NFL season to begin. I watched a little three-minute video just this past weekend on ESPN about Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers is a starting quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, and it was very interesting. He, in 2011, he led his team to the Super Bowl, and they defeated, I believe, the Steelers and won the Super Bowl. That's the peak of the NFL career. I mean, for a quarterback to win the Super Bowl, I don't know, was he the MVP of the game? Any Green Bay fans know? But he, he, he is a phenomenal quarterback. And he gets to that point, and he begins to talk about how as soon as he, literally as soon as he won that Super Bowl, he was shocked by how unfulfilling it was. And he's sitting on the bus to go back to the airplane, and they're passing the Lombardi trophy around, and he's basically saying, I hope there's more to life than this. I hope I do more than this. And it actually sent him on a spiritual journey where he's kind of returned to some of the roots of his faith. But I, there's this feeling of, uh, if I just had that, then I, would, then I would be happy. The problem is, is when you get that, there's always something else to get. There's always something more to get. But even if you somehow, by the grace of God in your life, get the ultimate thing, once you get it, you're going to realize it doesn't cover me. It won't cover me. It's like covering your physical nakedness with leaves. And in the end, it leads to more shame. And by shame, I mean it leads to a deeper awareness and sense that it's just I'm not enough. I'm inadequate. I'm insufficient. I can't measure up. There's this sense of that, and it's still not enough because sin always creates shame. Secondly, sin always creates separation. And we see that in this story because what do Adam and Eve do once they realize they're naked, once they try to cover themselves, and once they hear the sound of God who's coming to have his daily interaction with them, what do they do? They hide. Now, they hide because they believed a lie. Uh, In fact, they sinned because they believed a lie, a lie that God didn't care for them, that he was ruining their lives, that he didn't want the best for them. They believed that God was holding out on them. You know, they're asking themselves, well, yeah, why shouldn't I eat from that tree? Give me a good reason. One of the scary things that happens when you're a parent is as your kids get old enough that you need to address their behavioral issues, you hear yourself sounding just like your parents. Like you begin saying things like you, every kid at some point goes, I'm never going to be like my mom. I'm never going to be like my dad. I'm never going to say what they said. I'm never going to do that things. And all of a sudden, like you're, it's just literally just coming out of your mouth. You're like, ah, you're like, how do I get it back? I, I, you scare, you frighten yourself because you're like, that was, a, that was a line that my mom said or my dad said. And the most famous line that parents say to kids that I think generation to generation gets passed down, no matter how intent we are on not sounding like our parents, is that when a kid wants a reason for something you just told them to do, we say what? Because I said so. <laughs> because I said so. Because I told you to. I like to flourish a little. I like to embellish it a little bit. Because I pay all the bills here. Because I feed you. Because I clothe you. Or whatever it is, we like to say that because I said so. Now, why didn't God provide Adam and Eve with the warning about what was going to happen? He really, he could have scared them, couldn't he? He could have given them more of a reason. He could have given them an explanation for not eating that tree. But you know why he didn't? Because he wanted them to obey just because he said so. 
He wanted them to obey not out of fear, not out of guilt. He wanted them to obey out of trust and love. And if he gave them a reason, if he said, here's how it will benefit you, or don't do it because here's how it will hurt you, then even if they had obeyed him, it would have been self-serving. It would have been more out of self-interest than out of trust. And this is not the sort of trusting relationship that God wanted with Adam and Eve. And by the way, it's not the sort of trusting relationship he wants with you. So if we sit around saying, God, I see that your scriptures say that I should live this way, but give me a good reason. And sometimes the reason is just, I mean, we, there are reasons, of course, but sometimes it's just because I said so. Do you trust me? Do you love me? Do you believe that I have good things for you? Because if the only reason you and I obey God and come to church and give our money and sing these songs is because we're afraid of going to hell or because it makes us feel better than people who don't, then you're really serving God. You're not really serving God, are you? Who are you serving? You're really serving yourself. So they believed a lie that God was holding out on them. What are some of the lies that we believe? I just made a list. There's thousands, there's millions, but here's a few. We believe lies like this. God doesn't care about me. God's just like my dad. God is a hurt, or this is a, a hurting world means there can't possibly be a God. If I could just have more of this, I would be happy. If I could just have better, I can handle this. Life is all about me. This won't hurt me. I should be true to myself. I mean, that, you know, I think the greatest value of our society today is self-expression. I really do. You know, as I kind of study what's happening in society and read articles, I think the greatest value, the one value that you can't question at any, uh, except at great cost to how people look at you, is someone's ability to express themselves however they want. And so that's our highest value. Self-expression, self-actualization, self-idolization. But the kingdom of God has these values that sound like this. Self-denial, self-sacrifice, self-forgetfulness. And so we believe these lies that, you know, I just, just express myself. Uh, another person can fix me. We believe that I can fix myself. We believe that money can make me happy, that success can satisfy me. And when we believe lies, we end up hiding, hiding the truth, hiding behind the lies, hiding inside the lies, and we end up separated from both truth and from God. Now, in this story, we see three types of separation that immediately happened at the fall. And the first separation we see is that Adam and Eve actually become separated from themselves, not each other. That's the second one. But actually, there's a separation, that, that whole idea of noticing their own nakedness and feeling ashamed. That's a, that's a me issue. That's a separation from myself. Just this past week, I, was, I walked into the um, living room in our house, and one of my daughters is crying, and one of my daughters is smiling and happy which describes about 75% of my interaction with my daughters. But I walk in, and Caroline's on the couch crying, and Lilia's on the ground smiling and happy and playing with Madeline. And if you don't know our family, Madeline, our youngest daughter, uh, is three years old, and she has special needs. She has cerebral palsy. So she requires constant care. And so uh, Lilia is on the ground with Madeline, making sure she doesn't fall over and helping her play. And I say to Caroline, what, what are you crying about? What's the problem? And she says, I was helping I was helping Madeline. I, and then Lilia came in, and she's helping her now. And I'm like, why don't you both? Here's a, like a, here's a genius idea. How about you both help her? They don't want that, of course. Uh, and so then Caroline says something that really shocked me. She said, I, I, I kind of pushed a little more. I said, Caroline, what's upsetting you? And she said, I just want to prove that I can do it myself. And I thought, who's... Who's put that pressure on her? Like, I've never told her she has to prove herself to me. Aaron doesn't tell her that. Lily doesn't 
Madeline's not saying, no one has to put that pressure on us, do they? It's internal. Caroline wants to prove, not to me, not to Aaron, because no one was even in the room when she was helping Madeline. She wants to prove it to herself. That internal drive, and here's the, here's the thing. People want us to live up to their standards, but the problem is, is we can't even live up to our own standards. We disappoint ourselves, right, more than we disappoint other people. And so this is all a result of hiding. This is all a result of the fall, this sense of, like, I have to prove myself to myself. And this is the separation from my, it's almost like you're two different beings. You're separated from yourself. The other thing in this text is that they become separated from each other. They turn on each other immediately. As soon as God rolls in, Adam blames the woman, and the woman blames the serpent. It's just blame. Shame leads to blame. And here you see that hurt people hurt people, right? When people have been hurt, they hurt others, and they try to get their revenge. A couple years ago, I read this story that made me laugh. It happened in Palo Alto, and uh, there was this woman who was standing on the side of the road, and this, road of, this, this car teenager drove by and uh, allegedly threw a milkshake in her face. Well, she, of course, needed to hurt them back and, and, and teach them a lesson. So she did the only thing that she could do. She threw something at them. But the only thing she had in her hand was her purse. And so she fires her purse into the car as they're driving off with $2,000 of cash in her purse. <laughs> Hurting other people doesn't always work out how we think it's going to, right? And here, here we have this separation of people where we were immediately Adam and Eve try to hurt each other. And then the most profound separation is that we have this separation now from God. Adam and Eve normally would have run to the presence of God, and now they run away from it. They're trying to hide their nakedness. They're trying to hide from God as if they could hide. And the sad irony in this point of the story is that they're hiding from the only hope they actually have. They've tried to cover themselves with leaves. Now they're trying to cover themselves in a hiding place. And the only one who can really cover them is walking through the garden, and they're running away. At the very beginning of time, and whatever you think of Genesis 1 and 2 and how it happened, and we've talked about it the last four weeks, there's lots of debate, and there's lots of questions, but this we know. At the beginning of time, something went wrong. Humankind, in some way, in some format, rebelled against God, and we began to hide. And today, we still hide. Sin always creates shame and separation. But thank God, in this story and in history, God decides to do something about it. He decides to do something about the shame and the separation. He doesn't just say, well, you got what was coming. I mean, let's, be, let's, let's, I mean, let's think about this for a second. Millions of trees you could have eaten from, really? Like, all these trees, and you had to eat from this one. Well, I hope you learned your lesson. Enjoy eternity. And enjoy forever in shame and separation. Instead, God decides to act on the behalf of his fallen, rebellious, sinful creation. In verse 21, it says this. And the Lord God made for Adam and for Eve garments of skins and clothed them. He clothed them. But in order for him to do this, someone, something had to die. An animal had to die. An animal's blood had to be shed so that Adam and Eve could be covered, that their sin could be covered, that their nakedness, that their physical nakedness could be covered. But you know, there's no clothing, there's no animal skins that can cover the nakedness that really plagues us. It's not the physical nakedness, it's the emotional nakedness, the social nakedness, the, the spiritual nakedness. And in Hebrews 9.22, we read that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so right from the beginning, God sets the pattern that if you're going to be covered, blood is going to have to be shed. Adam and Eve, if your physical nakedness is going to be covered, then the blood of this animal is going to have to be shed. This innocent animal who did nothing to deserve this will suffer so that you can be covered. 
And then, of course, it's the foreshadowing that if our spiritual nakedness, if our shame is ever going to be covered, it was going to require the shed blood of someone innocent, someone perfect. Jesus comes to the earth, and he took our shame on the cross. The Bible actually says that he became our shame. He became our sin. Can you imagine how that felt to him on the cross? I mean, you and I have felt shame in our lives, right? We've all felt ashamed of things that we've done. We still struggle. I still struggle with shame. Just that, but that's just, at times, doesn't it feel like shame is going to crush you? You can't breathe. You can't live. You can't move. And that's you just bearing your shame. Jesus bears the shame of all humanity for all of history in one moment on the cross. No wonder his heart broke. No wonder he cried out. No wonder he was crushed. He became our shame. And then he also took our separation. He experienced. Now, theologically, there's a lot of debate about this. I don't know that the Trinity was literally torn apart because they're eternal and they're consistent and they don't change. But existentially, I guarantee you, experientially, I should say, Jesus experienced the separation from the Father. He took it all, the shame and the separation. And here's the good news for you and me this morning. We don't have to hide because Jesus didn't hide. When the soldiers walked in the garden and said, hey, we're looking for Jesus, the last time we read the garden, Adam and Eve, they hid. But this time, Jesus doesn't hide. He says, I'm the one. This is the hour. This is the hour that I'm going to glorify God. On trial, he didn't hide. They, they were terrible lawyers. They couldn't get their act together. They couldn't convict him, partly because he'd never done anything wrong, but also because they couldn't get their witnesses together. So you know what he had to do? He basically had to convict himself. He didn't hide. And then on the cross, he did not hide. He hung physically naked, laid out bare for us. He took our shame and our separation. And here's the sad thing. He provided the covering for us, but you and I spend so much energy, so much time, so much of our hearts looking in other places for that covering. We look to other people. Will you cover me? Will you complete me? Will you make me whole? We look to success. We look to pleasure. We look to wealth. We look to whatever it is, literally anything. But Jesus has already done what's necessary for you and I to be covered. Only Jesus' life and only Jesus' work can cover you. Let's pray together this morning.